Evenings. It's amazing how quickly the weather turns on us at this time of year. Um, a very warm welcome, however, to the 2017 Sopwith Lecture here at the Royal Aeronautical Society, and I'm sure that pretty much every year those that deliver this lecture take a few moments to reflect on the life and the contribution of its namesake. And if you haven't heard this one before, this is quite a story. So we all know that Sir Thomas Sopwith was one of the great contributors to the UK aerospace industry and certainly the longest lived, living a ripe old age to 101. Sir Thomas was someone who truly set himself up to win in the most difficult and challenging circumstances. The title of this Sopwith lecture, Navigating Uncertainty, would have particular resonance for Sir Thomas, I would argue, and not simply because of the obvious connection with aviation and his well-documented navigation of the high seas in his yachts, Endeavour, and Endeavour 2, for those of you that have heard the story, but also because of the way he dealt with uncertainty and change in his own life, the tragic loss of his father at the age of 10, and his role in that. For those of you that don't know the story, poor young Thomas was sitting with a gun across his knee when it accidentally went off, killing his father. Through to the bankrupting of his business and rebuilding it in uncertain times after the First World War, reinvented, if you will, for the post-war era. Ironically, his father's death and his role in this, something which very much haunted him for the rest of his life, was the very thing that set him up to navigate the uncertainty that life would throw at him ahead. And I suppose if you can survive the guilt of something as horrific as he experienced, then you can deal with almost any loss in life, manage any risk, and plow through difficulties as they're presented before you. So as I said, Sir Thomas really was someone who truly set himself up to win in the most difficult and challenging circumstances. So in this lecture this evening, I'm going to examine today's global challenges from emerging political curveballs to economic, sociological, and also technological imperatives. And I thought I'd take a walk back in history, looking at how the Romans in particular have taught us how to navigate uncertainty. More widely, I'm going to be looking at the modern-day issues and the challenges they bring to bear on the aerospace and defense industry a little closer to home. And I'll consider how organizations, and Megat in particular, are setting themselves up to win. So we all think we live in unprecedented times, but history really does tell us something quite different to that. We only need to look back to the late 1920s, the beginning of the Great Depression, which is still widely acknowledged as the worst economic downturn in the industrialized world, the stock market crash in October 1929 sent economies into a panic and wiped out millions of dollars of investment. Over the following decade, consumer spending dropped, investment dropped, output declined, and obviously unemployment rose very significantly. Does it all sound familiar? Well, the 2007-2008 global financial crisis is particularly well documented also. And this year, we mark 10 years since the global economy went into freefall, starting with the subprime mortgage market in the US and moving through to the collapse of Lehman Brothers uh, Investment Bank, which in turn took us into arguably another great global recession. So let's look back 
a little further. There are many, many lessons we can take from Roman history. Of course, there are lessons here about the way not to do things also. So I'll avoid some of the bullying and annihilation techniques, comply or die, uh, that the Romans did perfect from time to time. But most of us in the room should remember that infamous Monty Python sketch. What have the Romans ever done for us? in the film The Life of Brian. And for those of you in the room that may be at the younger end of the spectrum and too young to comprehend what that reference means, you really should Google it, and it's a great movie to watch if you haven't seen it. And it starts with that very question, what have the Romans ever done for us? And ends with, apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the fresh water system, public health... Really, what have the Romans ever done for us? So we can ask ourselves what the Romans ever did for us in this context. How have they helped to set us up to win in the modern era? That theirs is a most remarkable story is extremely well documented. They were the true navigators of uncertainty. And there's a tremendous amount of the way they did things that resonates in today's world. The Romans certainly created Uh, certainty in a particularly uncertain Europe in their day. Take Britain for an example. Chaos and crisis reigned. There were numerous different tribes. We were ruled by kings or chiefs, all of whom constantly fought one another. There were no towns, and most people were farming, living in villages. Houses were made of wood and mud, and getting anywhere was complicated and often particularly dangerous. There were no roads. Britain was simply a geographical entity. It had no political meaning and certainly no single cultural identity. Uncertainty, you might argue, prevailed. Well, the empire began when Augustus Caesar became the first emperor of Rome in in 27 BC, and it ended in its entirety when Romulus Augustulus was deposed in 476 AD. Their story is one of sustained military and political domination. Luck was never a tactic in holding on to their empire for some 500 years. And it could be argued that there was more certainty during their almost 400-year domination of Britain than we've ever seen since, particularly in the light of the disunion perhaps around Brexit. Prior to the Romans... Britain was a disparate set of people with no national identity beyond their local tribe. What the Romans actually did was make Britain British and provided people with that sense of identity. So how did the Romans do it? How did they set themselves up to win? They had a bold ambition. They were focused on building a global empire, a clear and ambitious goal. People and culture, operational excellence... Focus and structure were at the heart of their strategy. Not dissimilar, you might say, to modern-day global organizations and what they're trying to achieve. There are a number of areas where the Romans leveraged their abilities, and I'm going to highlight just three of them. Firstly, the inhabitants of newly conquered areas were thoroughly Romanized by bringing them the benefits of Roman civilization, structure, innovation, discipline, and providing people with a sense of self and belonging, a cultural piece, if you will. The Romans also recognized the importance of having a plan, 
which they communicated to their people so that everybody knew what they were looking to achieve. They had a passion for planning and organizing, which could put many modern-day boardrooms to to shame. They built new towns and cities, straight roads that facilitated transport and trade, introduced central heating, running water, the rule of law, and a single language, a system of weights and measures, and even a currency. At the heart of the empire, it was possible to travel from the Scottish border right the way through to the Euphrates using only one language, one currency, and less than one set of laws in complete safety. Operational excellence at its best, perhaps. And nor was organizational design an alien concept to our Roman friends. Today, organizations look at their business structure around delegation of power and decision-making, either within geographies or through product and capability, or even a hybrid matrix version. To the Romans, it was seemingly much more clear-cut. During the late Republic and early Empire, client kings were often used by the Romans in recently conquered provinces. These rulers were given a measure of local autonomy, power over the native inhabitants, and even permission to maintain armed forces in return for making sure that taxes flowed back into Rome smoothly and that the locals were kept under the thumb. This was effectively the Roman Empire way of running their business and how it was structured. So let's turn our attention to the modern day Uh, uh, So so some of the modern-day uncertainty, as it was in Roman times, it is ever-present. Our challenges may be different and the pace of them faster than ever before, and yes, it really does feel as though we're living in a less stable world than we were some 20 years ago. But the uncertainty is the same. Bold ambition, culture, operational excellence, and structure are as relevant today as they were to the Romans. Look at the fabric of uncert- looking at the fabric of uncertainty that we're facing today, I would argue that there are a number of interwoven threads, political, sociological, economic, and technological. So let's start with the political and sociological uncertainty. Having walked in and taken back Crimea, Russia has gone on to create uncertainty in the Ukraine and fear across the rest of the Baltic region. Russia has begun challenging the West in a manner that has not been seen since the end of the Soviet Union. In a contradictory way, it has played its hand in Syria, on the opposite side to the West, although fought alongside the West to defeat ISIL. This is perceived by many as a deliberate attempt by Russia to increase the uncertainty we face in the world today. Creating chaos allows those with a cooler head to consolidate their own power base. While the American people increasingly fear China, Russia, and now North Korea, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about the new world order. The threat that each of these countries is perceived to pose is heightened to some extent by Donald Trump's modern-day diplomacy, which is perceived as increasingly unpredictable and conducted from the soapbox of Twitter. Indeed, the world is experiencing the repercussions of this and the implied threat of Trump's words with the current situation in North Korea. What would our friends, the the Romans, have made of this? North Korea is a regime posing a threat not only to the US, but an even greater one to its neighbors, South Korea, and now Japan, and to some extent to global peace. 
Neither has Iran gone away either. And while the West is attempting to come to terms with Iran because of the potential benefits of new trade, it's in no mood to be fooled or to play with any contempt. An occasional reminder, such as last week's nudge to Iran from President Trump, brings the years of uncertainty and threat right back into focus. In the Middle East, conflict in Syria and Yemen continue to play out on the back of, survey, uh, of the severing by Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Egypt, and the UAE of diplomatic ties with Qatar. Relations within the Gulf regions are arguably at the most strained they've been in living memory. Indeed, the Middle East is literally a battleground, and it's interesting that the various governments within that region have begun to engage in military conflicts themselves, rather than paying the U.S. military to fight proxy wars on their behalf. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis' direct military interventions in the Yemen are unprecedented in contemporary times. The Qatari blockade by its Sunni neighbors is also remarkable, especially as it's aimed at diminishing Iran's Shia power in the region. These underlying Sunni-Shia tensions are very poorly understood by most people outside of the region. The Middle East tensions are unlikely to go away, even though we, the West, are largely more distracted by the threat of nuclear war in Korea, North and South. And so to Europe... France has a new president, and one who's been universally welcomed. And while some argue that Monsieur Macron has limited experience around defense, security, or diplomacy, he certainly does appear to have been very quick to learn and influence the European political agenda. Also, Germany's recent election result, whilst clearly weakening Angela Merkel, should leave us in little doubt that both Merkel and Macron will wish the Franco-German alliance to be strong, and for the two nations to work closely together. Macron is clearly not prepared to allow France to play second fiddle to Germany. But more broadly, the West has changed too, as has the concept of terrorism. Firstly, fundamentalist Islamic terrorism, increasingly hit by terrorist action in the wake of ISIL and the huge increase in migration to Europe from North Africa, Syria and elsewhere, Europe is being forced to tighten its security. One of the interesting shifts is from Westerners thinking about the Middle East problem to one that affects the problem as a Middle East problem to one that affects every major city in the world now. Perhaps more than any other trend, these on our soil attacks have created a sense of fear. Using the U.S. Military College's acronym for this, VUCA, which many of you may have heard before, we really do live in an increasingly volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. Then we have cyber terror, cyber attacks, be they from North Korea or Russia or others. Look at how the alleged Russian cyber manipulation of the U.S. election still affects the post-election narrative showing that the West is perhaps less prepared than the rhetoric of our politicians might suggest. Who knows who or where this might be felt next? Following several terrorist attacks in Europe, the political landscape has changed beyond recognition, not just in the USA, but globally, and very particularly here in the UK. Democracy is being tested and the movement towards populism has seen the status quo politics being turned upside down, along with traditional values and concept of government being swept away. 
The issue of mass migration raises the notion of identity. It is emotive, and the issue of protecting one's identity and culture is at the heart of the rise of the far-right movements across both Europe and the United States. It is as if no matter what is offered by the mainstream parties, voters are determined to sweep away the status quo. Nowhere has this been more clearly demonstrated by the actions of voters than in the United States and twice in the UK. The Brexit vote and a year later, the general election. We are in turbulent times. The status quo has been tipped on its head. The election of Donald Trump, the near-miss election of Marie Le Pen in France, and most recently, Angela Merkel's hollow victory at the German polls, with the Alternative for Deutschland campaigning to take back the country and the people. That was their election slogan. Extraordinary language, I would argue, for a post-World War II Germany. Well, it's true to say that despite the word's Latin origins, the Romans weren't ever very keen on referendums, on whether various regions should be in or out of the empire. So to the decision by voters in Britain to reject membership of the European Union a year later remove a significant amount of power from the very prime minister that needs to negotiate the exit remains ours to resolve. Turbulent times indeed, but the geopolitical landscape is not the only area that is causing such uncertainty. How will the global economy react to these political shocks? Even though it's improved more rapidly than feared over the past three years, will that trend continue? It isn't possible, I would argue, to forecast such seismic geopolitical events and the level of instability. And yes, uncertainty in economies around the world does remain high. And finally, to give a little more focus to the technological challenges, because they are all certainly linked. Social platforms are changing the way, the way we interact as a society. Technology has impacted key events over the past decades, and technology changes apace. The digital world changes how we live and how we work, and even how we vote. We need to create focus and meaning to the new generations entering working life, the millennials. They need a sense of purpose and identity. Indeed, they are so capable with the latest technologies but hold different values, dear, compared to previous generations. Their expectations are different, and this is a challenge. I think Assistant Chief of Air Staff, Air Vice Marshal Richard Knighton, best sums up these challenges. I heard him say this. His remarks were, our globalized world is characterized by the rapid flow of ideas, data, people, and capital. This, he says, fuels rapid technological innovation, but it can also create a large amount of instability. So back onto home turf, having cantered through the Romans and various other parts of Europe, and back to the aerospace industry and the UK aerospace industry in particular. The current competitive landscape remains very challenging. Supplier management and driving costs down is a key focus of all of the big players, which of course has a knock-on effect across the sector. Acquisition, as discussed earlier, plays a key role in the growing perception that the big players are going to get bigger. Across the supply chain, we're all positioning for the future, however uncertain that might feel at times. 
The outlook for growth for the sector does remain very positive, and the order books of the major aircraft manufacturers are very healthy indeed. Air traffic's grown over the past 30 years at about 5% per annum, and recent growth is even stronger than that, with 5% remaining the long-term projection. Commercial aerospace is being challenged by more competition moving into traditional Boeing and Airbus markets. The recent Boeing-Bombardier standoff is a new eyesore on the landscape of competition, new because it brings in the influence and, most importantly, power of political, by that I mean government intervention, to the marketplace, an additional dynamic which adds to the dynamic of uncertainty that we're discussing today. Interesting, indeed, that Airbus and Bombardier announced their planned partnership on the C-Series on Monday, with financial markets responding very positively to the reduction of uncertainty around that program. And although China, Russia, and Canada are determined to take a bigger share of a still-growing commercial aerospace market dominated by Boeing and Airbus today, those who continue to invest in new technology and materials and those who provide ever-improving levels of operational efficiency, reduce fuel cost, noise levels, and reduce environmental costs, in my view, will still be the ones that stay ahead. One stark reality of the UK's defence aircraft production is a heavy reliance on a narrow portfolio of programmes, as exemplified last week in BAE's announcement concerning the implications of the order gap for the Typhoon programme. UK competitiveness has fallen due to a combination of factors, but the UK must make itself more efficient and cost-effective. Otherwise, it will lose out, particularly post-Brexit, where it will need to redefine itself in the international marketplace. The biggest danger for the UK is allowing itself to be trampled on by would-be competitors, desperate to take away our piece of the cake and with the agility and ability to do so. We must lead by example, be pragmatic in our decision-making, and stay ahead by showing a willingness to invest and take a degree of risk, and in making ourselves the most efficient and best in respect of technology and manufacturing. If that means manufacturing outside of the UK, because it's cheaper to do so, then we must consider this in order to protect our core capability also. And how about that subject of industry consolidation? The tectonic plates really have started to move here, literally in the last few months. They started with Safran making its announcement of the intended acquisition of Zodiac Aerospace in France, creating a consolidated French aerospace business. That'll be the third largest globally. And what of UTC's proposed acquisition of Rockwell Collins, or Northrop Grumman's even more recently announced plans to acquire Orbital ATK? Whilst there's a clear industrial logic behind all of these deals and M&A plans, there's also a clear trend towards seeking greater scale as the pricing power dynamics play out between the airframers and the OEM manufacturers. And what about risk? The UK, and by this I'm talking about industry, government and academia, must learn to be less risk-averse. We as an industry need to invest in our long-term prosperity without the continual need to look over our shoulder and worry about increasingly short-term financial returns. We must prove that unless you take a degree of risk, then you're likely to fail, because others will. Think particularly here about those countries with more authoritarian regimes than our own. 
They have an ability and an agility to decision-make and collaborate at the drop of a hat. Whilst this is not part of our culture or our political system, like the Romans, we need to be bold and fleet of foot. Whilst industry needs to invest more in its own future, it must also be open to collaboration with academia and government to attain the very best in technology and innovation. These can be tough and complex relationships to navigate. It's equally true that governments have a big role to play. Despite the fact the support rhetoric from government has been particularly good with partnerships such as the Aerospace Growth Partnership and also the Defence Growth Partnership, for example, and that's very positive, there are some who will say that our government is not genuinely behind our aerospace and defence industry. We need to do more to convince them of the economic, the employment and the export benefits. And equally important is that we must sell the industry better to the public. If the public's not on our side, then governments will fail to prioritise aerospace and defence. Back in January this year, the government opened a dialogue around the UK's industrial strategy with the publication of a green paper. UK industry needs to figure out how to stay competitive, and part of this is through increasing investment to secure our own future, creating new ideas, being flexible, giving the customer what he or she wants rather than telling them what they can have. But it's also about our appetite for risk and being bolder in respect of M&A internationally. But also through investing in new technology, unmanned aerial systems, space, security and cyber, next generation materials and composites, and breakthrough technologies in the electrical and environmental arenas, for instance as well as playing a part within the growing wider research and development context, all present opportunities for the future. We have to be bold from here on in, and this is where our Roman friends can really teach us a thing or do, a thing or two. Bold ambition should drive what we do. And so to defence, there's a growing opportunity, obviously with all of this uncertainty, for our defence industry as after years of declining spending, the West is waking up to the reality that it's been left behind, and there are those that threaten to challenge it. China's annual defense budget has risen by between 7 and 10% over the past six years, and it'll hit an equivalent of $160 billion this year. And whilst this is still somewhat behind the USA's $525 billion per annum expenditure, that gap is closing, and it's closing rapidly. Russia... India and the majority of the Middle East-based states have also increased spending on defence consistently throughout the last five years. More topically, last week, even the Danish government announced that it was proposing a 20% increase in its defence budget, which it says is about deterring a growing threat from Russia. Citing increased Russian military activity, the Danish government says that it sees this increase in defence spending is more than justified. Only now, it seems, are Western nations waking up to the reality that they need to spend more on defence rather than less. However, there are additional complexities that will provide headwinds to any potential increases. Brexit in the UK, because of the potentially negative near-term impact on the economy, means that defence may not get all that it was supposed to get in the Strategic Defence and Security Review of 2015. The Permanent Under-Secretary is currently one quarter of the way through a review 
of all planned UK defence procurement ahead of a formal three-month review process to be led by the Secretary of State that will follow immediately afterwards. The result is that because of all of the above, along with a fast enlarging black hole in, in the defence budget, which could reach around £20 billion by 2020 to 2021, defence is initially moribund until November this year. Agreed numbers of procurement may well be reduced or orders further pushed back. One of the biggest impacts, interestingly, in the post-Brexit announcement is the fall of the value in sterling by around 20%, which means that we're more competitive as an exporter from the UK of goods, but not as a buyer of equipment. And none of that had been factored in when SDSR was written in 2015, and hence a huge gap has appeared between the defence budget and the actual spend. So turning to NATO... Another contentious point at a time of uncertainty. We all know that the UK continues to play a vitally important role in NATO and is the second largest contributor to NATO after the United States. President Trump has challenged the notion of NATO, its being and its purpose, and has questioned why the USA should pay such a high cost for Europe's defence. He's also laid down the challenge to the now 27 European members of NATO in Europe that they must pay more for the defence. He's questioned why so many European members of NATO, such as France and Germany, are not yet spending 2% of their GDP on, on defence, which was the outcome of the agreement at the 2014 NATO summit in Wales, where every country was committed to spend progressively 2% of their GDP on defence. But it's worth noting, however, that if Germany were to spend 2% of their GDP on on defence, it would almost double the strength of the German military, bringing with it a sensitivity going back to the Second World War and a traditionally ultra-cautious approach to allowing the German military to become too powerful. The French economy remains challenging, and France is in frankly no position to spend that much more on defence currently. And whilst the UK may well be leaving the EU, it is not leaving NATO. And yet, whilst the discourse in the EU remains very supportive of NATO, there is a notion, fed by the US's perceived increasingly isolationist stance and substantiated by the UK's decision to leave the EU, that this presents a golden opportunity for the EU to grow its own defence union. This would certainly provide universal access, universal defence across the, uh, the European Union, but would be completely at the expense of NATO. And turning to future platform developments, will Brexit have an impact on FCAS, for instance, the future combat air system? An artist's impression there of, the, of one FCAS platform. It's the French-British plan for a large unmanned air power concept. And in my view, I don't believe that that will be affected. Will Britain be excluded from the development of a sixth-generation military fast jet platform? What is clear is that the UK will have to earn its place, unless it decides it doesn't want it, or it will need to find a way to go it alone with some of our European partners. And there are defence implications for Britain because of the Trump administration, Britain has been reliant on the US for training of seed corn crews on maritime patrol aircraft capability and many other aspects of their defence partnership arrangement, not least the training on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. 
It's done so because we've been prepared to procure from the U.S. In another example, we will, for the first four years from 2021, be reliant on the U.S. Marines F-35B Stovall aircraft variants flying off the two U.K. new aircraft carriers. If we start cutting procurement numbers, there may well be a backlash from the U.S. So finally, how does that story relate to Megit's bold ambition? Well, we're a global engineering group, and we're focused on smart engineering for extreme environments with a broad portfolio of products and capabilities which are sold into our target markets. We're headquartered in the United Kingdom, and we operate in North America, Europe, and Asia. And we're recognized today as the world leader in aerospace, as a world leader in aerospace, defense, and energy. We employ around 11,000 people worldwide, and we supply most of the biggest names in aerospace and defense. And our antecedents can be traced back to around 1850, with innovations such as early aviation instruments for hot air balloons, including the world's first altimeter. Our markets have high certification requirements, and the programs we support typically have service lives extending over many decades. Our products have mission and safety-critical roles, and they have to perform flawlessly in extremes of pressure, temperature, and other challenging conditions. And it's fair to say that you're normally never more than about six feet away from either technology or products that have been designed and made by Megit on the vast majority of the world's commercial aircraft fleet. And whether it's engine sensors, emergency lighting, fire protection systems, avionics, or complex door and window seals and composites, or what we like to call smart engineering for extreme environments. We own the vast majority of the intellectual property used in our products, and 75% of our revenues today are generated from sole source life of program positions, which provides a growing and very much annuity-like revenue stream, including the aftermarket demand that can last for decades after the products are initially designed. For example, we've got an excellent position in military fuel bladders, where our world-leading technology in crash-worthy ballistic-proof fuel tanks equips the vast majority of the U.S. military helicopters and a great many fixed-wing aircraft, too. Our technology enables our customers to do do some truly extraordinary things, and military fuel tanks is a particularly exceptional example. There's the story of a V-22 Osprey pilot who came under heavy fire during a routine operational mission in Afghanistan. The aircraft took 27 direct hits to the fuel tanks, But our self-sealing fuel tank technology performed exactly as designed, with the advanced polymer material resealing the bullet holes and enabling the pilot to fly an hour back to base with all the souls on board, ensuring the lives of the crew and everybody returned home safely that night. That's what proprietary technology does in the aerospace industry. We're also a broad and balanced business. We have a relatively even split between original equipment and aftermarket, and we have content on almost every flying aircraft, with no one platform accounting for more than 3.5% of revenue, and most less than 2% were relatively well insulated from any particular platform-specific challenges. And our growing installed base includes more than 67,000 aircraft. So how is Megit setting itself up to win in this time of uncertainty? Well, for a number of years now, the company's been on a journey 
from a financial holding company in the early days to a progressively more integrated business. And this is enabling us to win more business, and it will enable us to extract more synergies from the business and to up our game in terms of execution. Through our strategy process, we've highlighted the critical few initiatives that would enable us to accelerate our progress towards becoming an integrated group. We've named the program through which we'll realize these improvements, delivering breakthrough performance. And you can see on the slide the program focuses on four key areas of improvement, portfolio, customers, competitiveness, and culture, all of which work together to drive growth and return on capital employed and enable Megit to become one of the best businesses in our sector. And I'll just take you through each of those four areas. So our goal is to optimize our portfolio in attractive markets where we can win. With a greater focus in mind, we've refreshed our strategy process to put more emphasis on those parts of the portfolio with the highest return potential and allocating capital accordingly. This chart shows at a high level the distribution of our revenue based on our review of market attractiveness and our competitive positioning. And this portfolio analysis determines that 68% of our revenue is in market segments that combine those attractive dynamics with a strong megit competitive position. And we believe that compares very favorably with our tier two peer group. And that there's a great opportunity to move this even higher over the coming years to as much as potentially 80%, both through further improving our competitiveness, but also through targeted M&A. In the top left-hand quadrant, we have 13% of revenue in attractive market segments, but where we lack a strong competitive position. Advanced Composites is an excellent example of a market segment that was historically in exactly that position, and a carefully targeted set of acquisitions from both Cobham in the UK and in the US, and also EDAC in the USA, has enabled us to move this capability into the top right-hand corner. This segment alone provides good growth potential, and one of our largest customers are recently outlining their desire to convert over 400,000 metallic components into composites in their bill of materials over the coming years. It gives us confidence in our growth projections, which are currently running at around 13% per annum for engine composites. And looking at the bottom left of the slide, we have a very small portion of revenue in markets where neither the market nor our competitive positioning are strong. And although we may decide to exit some of these businesses in some instances, it also includes legacy work which fills small parts of our factories and takes up a very limited amount of management bandwidth and even less capital. So in terms of how we're going to execute this portfolio strategy, we've already made some very good progress. Our, our other strategic initiatives are driving operational performance through our Megit production system and customer service improvements, which make us a much more competitive supplier. And our applied research and technology program also ensures we further develop our competitive position for the long term. These actions taken on a group-wide basis progressively move all of our businesses from the left to the right. And through disposals and acquisitions, we will further increase our exposure to attractive markets and expand the technology portfolio that enables us to move from left to right and from bottom to top on this chart. Over the last several years, Megit has invested 10% of sales in R&D. That's about double comparative companies in the sector. 
And what's that done for us? Well, it's enabled us to secure strong market positions across our portfolio. This has underpinned very good near-term growth, which you can see clearly demonstrated with our increased shipset content. They've grown by between 20 and 250% on the new aircraft versus those that are being replaced. And new program wins across a broad number of platforms in the commercial, business jet, and military aircraft markets. One stat that we're particularly proud of is that in the last 18 months, the company has been part of the first flight of nine new aircraft in 18 months, eight of which are fitted with Megit wheels and braking systems. Phenomenal load for our engineering teams and very much what speaks to the 10% in R&D. We recognize that our customers will increasingly demand bigger technology steps between successive generations of aircraft and that we need to continue to invest more up front to develop these new technologies. Some of the technology areas we're focusing on include next-generation fire suppression, next-generation thermal management, as that becomes a bigger challenge in both engine and airframe design, engine composites, and more all-electric braking. Technology and innovation are very much at the heart of everything we do at Megit, and we will continue to invest proactively in new product and manufacturing technologies that will sustain our competitiveness and deliver on our customers' requirement for the next generation of aircraft. We've also made good progress in improving our operational performance, and we have the team and the tools in place to continue to deliver that. Customers have noticed the progress we've made operationally in terms of both our quality and delivery performance, which combined with market-leading technology has been an attractive proposition. We launched our Customer Services and Support Organization, or CSS, in 2015, following a series of aftermarket challenges, such as the rapid growth in the availability of used surplus parts and the increasing sophistication of our MRO providers. The mission of CSS is to drive growth and to mitigate some of those headwinds which we were experiencing by delivering significant improvements in customer service. We started by launching a common interface to our customers, but we very quickly moved this year to transitioning to a full-service spares and repairs organization, which in its first full year of operation outgrew the market for our type of components. Our customer support and service organization has made good progress in improving service to our aftermarket customers, and a more center-led approach is making us as a company much easier to do business with. And I'm particularly proud to say that I believe, and I've seen a few different systems and ways of doing this in different companies, but that I believe we've genuinely got one of the best lean and continuous improvement programs that I've seen in many parts of the aerospace sector. We call this, as I've mentioned before, the Megit Production System. It was launched in 2013, and our objective was to improve our operational performance and to win more business on the many new programs about to be bid. And we've been very successful in improving our quality and delivery, which our customers tell us has been the underpinning of winning more content on those new aircraft programs. Today, we've launched MPS at all of our sites worldwide, and we now have our first sites entering the bronze and silver stages, or fourth and fifth stages, of a six-stage program, where performance improvements start to yield meaningful financial returns. And so to our supply chain and footprint initiatives, 
In our external supply chain, as with the MEGIT production system, our early focus has been on quality and delivery, where we've seen strong improvement, and our attention is moving increasingly to enhancing financial performance. And we'll be announcing a new CPO who will join us um, to accelerate this in November this year. In terms of footprint, we have a track record of consolidating sites globally, but we've recently paused the bigger moves due to the unprecedented wave of new programs in development and ramping up. But we're now proceeding at pace as we roll off the back of those development programs, and we're committed and targeting a 20% reduction in footprint by 2021. And so to the final strand, which covers our work to build a high-performance culture. We're taking our lead from the Romans, who were so very clever at assimilating new nations into their empire, with great traditions and incentives to join, as Monty Python makes very clear, they really did a lot for us. In today's world, in order to successfully run any global company, or for anyone planning an acquisition, this is a critical capability. Organizations have to master it. Our modern-day name for this is high-performance culture. We've got a really great team at Megit and have delivered some significant improvements over the last few years. And I've seen the dramatic improvements that can be made through a, an aligned and engaged approach and a structured approach to developing a high-performance culture. At Megit, the transition from a holding company to an integrated business provides a really good opportunity for us to further progress in this area over the next few years. We have an opportunity to drive superior performance by nurturing a culture which sets the bar higher for us all, which expects Megit to be the best place to work, the best in our business, and one which seeks out, attracts, reinforces, and develops high performance. In short, building a high performance culture will accelerate our progress in becoming a truly world-class engineering and technology business. The strength and impact of our culture, defined through our behaviours, are crucial to this. Our success is dependent on our shared sense of purpose and our emotional connection to what we do. That's why we've launched a high-performance culture programme at Megit, making a significant shift in the value we place in not just what we do, but how we do it. So that was a brief overview of Megit's bold ambition, underpinned by operational excellence, people and culture, and a solid structure. But before I take questions, I'd like to end with a quote from a great Roman poet, Virgil, and also a very short video. Fortune favors the bold. This translation of Virgil's Latin proverb will not be unfamiliar to you. It's been used historically in the military in the Anglo-Saxon world, and it's still used extensively today. Think about it in the context of this lecture and navigating uncertainty. Uncertainty really is nothing new, although the pace at which it happens is arguably faster than ever before. Uncertainty is not the issue itself. It's the way we deal with it. We should learn from the Romans. Be bold pragmatic and agile, embrace change, don't fear it, and set yourselves up to win by changing the way your organization thinks, creating a sense of purpose and connection for your teams, giving your organization the ability and the agility to adapt to change, 
and think like a Roman general. Be brave, be focused, but most of all, be fearless.